Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Welcome to WGON Legends. Tonight's guest, Jeff Monahan, actor in Day of the Dead, Monkey Shines, The Dark Half, and Bruiser. Well, basically, when I was growing up, there, was, there were only a few channels on television, and because uh, I'm old. So the thing is that at that time, uh, if you wanted to watch a movie, whatever happened to be on, that's what you're going to be watching. So I think I was exposed to, like, films from different decades, you know, back to the 30s, and even sometimes it was on Channel 13, there would be uh, silent movies. So I think one of the things that's fallen by the wayside today is everybody is watches the latest thing, and they don't always explore older things. So I used to watch uh, a lot of movies when I was growing up. I was, uh, I only have one brother, he's 11 years older, so I sort of was raised as an only child. And my dad was a big movie fan, and so I just grew up watching them. And so since I was very, uh, uh, I was by myself a lot, um, I would watch movies. And I must have had ADD or something in terms of, of reading, because it wasn't until like I was 15 years old that I could read a book. I just couldn't maintain the attention that long. Now I read constantly, but up until that age, I, I wasn't able to really sit long enough to read a book but um big fan of movies from that and then there was killer theater uh with uh, laurie cordell's dad bill cordell uh from night of the living dead and that was on every saturday night at eleven thirty. so i would be up until three o'clock in the morning watching killer theater so became a big a big horror fan that way so i'm guessing that's how you first discovered george romero killer theater <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I saw like so many things, uh, so many um, different different films, you know, through through the years. I, I, mostly, what I remember, like the old Universal classics, you know, the Frankenstein and Wolfman and the Mummy, and I would buy Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine and uh, Creepy and Eerie, and like so I could I could uh, I had the, I had the attention span for those, but. Um, Night of the Living Dead came later on, a little bit later on for me. But uh, once I saw that, that was that was quite shocking. So I already, I knew about George Romero, and uh, I didn't, didn't actually meet him until I went to see Creepshow in Monroeville, and uh, and he was at the theater for the premiere. Is it was it the Cinemat East, the one in the, or I believe that's what it was called in the the parking lot of the Monroeville Mall. It wasn't in the parking lot of the mall. It was across the street and uh, across the highway and up a ways. Um, I can't remember what the name of the movie theater was. But it was a pretty pretty big multiplex, and uh, we had gone to see it. 
George was there and they had a mock-up of the crate um, and I just went over to say hi like a you know blithering fanboy <laughs> you know and uh, Chris was with him and she got caught in a, a sort of a, a window blind rope or something as I walked up so I helped her <laughs> disengage herself and so that was my intro I don't really remember what anybody said but it was like I just wanted to you know say hello and I really really liked the movie one of those one of those things so um so when you said you discovered uh Night of the Living Dead what around what year are we talking well that was all through the 60s Uh, growing up I I was born in 59 so growing up through the 60s and the 70s I watched Chiller Theater theater every Saturday night so when I first saw Night of the Living Dead not sure when it would have been but it was in that era of growing up and just watching all of those things and that that sort of just became my my main focal point of the week because I wasn't like into school or anything at that time I didn't have too many friends I was very shy very quiet and all that changed later but during that phase i I was just like this this little geek boy which uh you know with his creepy and eerie and famous monsters and chiller theater and that was my life uh that's what that's what really kept me going throughout the week uh so i would look forward to saturday night and staying up by myself and watching you know watching chiller so it it was a lot of it was uh it was really saved me i think you know in a way that was that was it gave me a focus so did you catch any of george's films between night and creep show well we saw uh, dawn of the dead uh which uh was a big uh just a shocker i, I was dating my wife uh at the time and we had gone to see dawn and we're just totally blown away by it and I remember it opened so violently you're just hit with so much violence and the effects for that for that time in movie history that was such a uh, in your face bloodbath and it opened so violently I think to uh, just to sort of like get you used to that just until you settle down into the drama of it and we we laughed a, a lot I remember we just laughed like crazy through it and had a great great time and then I took her home afterwards and I had uh, I had given her a large blue teddy bear that we got at some park or something and she woke up in the middle of the night and lying next to her in the bed was a blue bear with the eyes staring right at her and having seen Dawn of the Dead she screamed and her mother swore she was never allowed to date me again yeah. So, but uh, that was that was a big uh, that was a big uh, influence. So, how did you get into acting? Since I was such a big movie fan, I thought I would be an actor. Um, but uh, I was talked out of that for all the right reasons. Uh, you know, just like how hard it is to make a living, and it's crazy, and it's a pipe dream. So don't do that. So I went off and I became a police officer, and I did that for a few years. And while I was a police officer, I got involved in undercover narcotics. And I had done a couple of plays uh, before any of that started, just like local community theater things. And I really, really loved it, but I was convinced I could never make a living at it. And so that's why I got into uh, police work. But when I got into undercover narcotics, I had done that for a while and successfully, and I realized that I was acting. You know, 
was, I had a different name. I was out buying cocaine. I was doing, and I thought, hey, you know, I must be okay at it because nobody's killed me. And so <laughs> maybe I can do this. And so um, I sort of just shifted careers at that point crazily. But, you know, it was, uh, uh, I always say I was really happy that I, that I, did that profession, uh, and then I'm, uh, I was also very happy that I left it when I did. So uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have had all these experiences since then. So I had, there was a tenth grade teacher, Miss Griffin, um, who now I think lives in Monroeville, um, and she um, we had English class, and she had a six week break in our English class, and we she had a class called Creative Dramatics in 10th grade and we had to uh, memorize a bit of Shakespeare um, we had to get together in groups of three and write a play and act in it and I remember the other two people I was paired with uh, partnered with they didn't want to do it so I wrote it and um, I played a, 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 an alcoholic boxer you know but it was like I was getting these little bites of the acting bug then and for those six weeks I stopped being shy I just, girls started noticing me. I mean, it was just, that was really cool. And then I went right back into my show once we went back into regular English class. But it was, I had these little moments of it before uh, deciding to just take the plunge uh, when I was in my mid-twenties. What was the acting scene like in Pittsburgh at that point? In Pittsburgh, it, when I first started uh, doing things, the, there was a lot of theater, and there still is, which is really, really good and really gratifying. And I studied with a guy named Charles Waxberg, uh, who was wonderful and uh, had come out of Carnegie Mellon. And he was moving to New York, and he set me up with a professional class in uh, um, in Pittsburgh with a woman named Liz Orion. And Liz uh, was head of the drama program at Carnegie Mellon. And so it was a private class for equity actors only and I should not have been allowed in it but he put in a word for me and I got to join all of these professional actors, equity actors and that was like my first uh, time after Charles, uh, after Chuck Waxberg um, studying that way and it was really eye opening but there were a lot, of, a lot of theaters and I just started auditioning around and I worked at the Pittsburgh Playhouse I did the Pittsburgh Playhouse main stage I did the traveling troupe that they had that we went to schools and did uh, Fall of the House with Usher and Mark Twain and all sorts of uh, all sorts of plays traveling around uh, worked at Hartwood Acres the Three River Shakespeare Festival um, so it was just it was a, there was a lot of theater and it's a really good town for that. I did, and I got my equity card uh, at the Pittsburgh Public Theater um, doing She Stoops to Conquer there. And um, so I just kept studying. I worked with a guy named Glenn Gress, who was teaching. He had a theater company that was uh, turning equity, so uh, they ended up uh, not being able to sustain that very long, but I did Tobacco Road there, and I played the Baptist in Salome, and and, and I was seen doing that by a guy named Bill Gardner, who was running the public theater, and he had me come over to the public to do uh, an audition, and uh, that's how I got my equity card. But it's always been a good theater town, and so it's, it's like there's always been a lot of talent in Pittsburgh, and uh, so that's been very gratifying. 
I have to ask, uh, while while working in the Pittsburgh theater scene, did you ever have a chance to work with Ray Lane? Yes, yes. I did a play called The Time of Your Life with Ray. It was It's like a three-hour William Soroyan play. John Amplis directed it from Martin. Um, and so it was like this big cast play. And it was a very fun experience because uh, the play is really, really long. And Ray talked really, really slowly. So it was longer. And once you were on stage, once your character came on stage, it was a bar. And you never left. You just stayed there. And if the scenes would shift between different characters, you would find bits of business and things like that to keep you, to keep you going. And, um, during the run, um, it was, uh, there was a Steeler football game. A Super Bowl or some big game and the play set in the 1930s but you couldn't have a TV anywhere there but Dave Butler who was the bartender uh, brought in a television put it underneath the bar so the audience couldn't see it with the sound down so during an entire matinee performance we'd always find ways to gather around the bar and look at watch, watch television while Ray Lane talked and really slowly but he was a wonderful wonderful actor and a really nice guy now, how did you uh, transition from the theater scene into working on films, uh, specifically starting out with uh, George Romero's Day of the Dead? Well, I've always been fascinated by movies. And in those days, the whole idea of a movie was really sexy and really exciting and really scary because you had these huge Panavision cameras and it wasn't cheap. And it wasn't like today when everybody just whips out a cell phone and makes their own movie. It was to, to do a movie was like, going to the moon it was like really crazy and i was all i didn't really know what i was doing i really didn't i was just beginning in so many ways business-wise or even learning anything and i was fascinated with the movie thing i was fascinated with george and and all that so at 247 fort Pitt boulevard i still remember the address that was laurel entertainment and I went in and I wanted to audition for Day of the Dead. And th- th- I w- just went in and I wanted, let me audition, you know. <laughs> and I didn't get a call. There was no agent sending me or anything. And there was a really nice lady there. I don't know who she was, but uh, we became uh, friends for a while afterwards. But she said, oh, here, read this. So she had me read from Steel, believe it or not. And I was this skinny, geeky, completely unlike Gary Clark person. (laughs) And it must have been, I just, I'm I'm sure it was just awful. But um, I, that was, maybe it was just to get me out of the office. But I read the scene with Steele, something about blowing people apart with a machine gun or something, you know. And then she says, well, do you, you want to come back? you want to come in and be a zombie? I thought, okay, that was a great audition. <laughs> so, um, but they were, they were filming and it, it, it was up and running and all that stuff. And I just pushed, pushed to get seen for something, anything. So I went to Wampum with the mine where they were filming. And the first day they, they had all, all of those zombies in like this blue makeup. And we were like way down this tunnel. And Lori and uh, a couple of the other guys are trying to get away. It's when they're locked on the zombie side by steel or whoever. And we're struggling to get them. 
and it's the day of slow walking zombies. So we're trying to get there quickly, but we, you know, we're the slow walking zombies. And we're really highly motivated because the closer we get to the camera, the better seen we can be. But you can't really run as a zombie in those days. So it was great fun. We were paid like a dollar. That was like, and you got a hat. Uh, but after that day, the lady who I had auditioned for, she said, you want to come back and be a featured zombie? I said, yeah, yeah, you know. So uh, I went back and I did, uh, Chris Romero called me Broccoli Man. And, uh, <laughs> the uh, makeup guy was uh, Howard Berger. And so they did this great makeup job on me. I got to get shot in the head after I grabbed the, grabbed the hat off of Steele's head. He shoots me. George actually shoved me through the doorway, uh, on cue, uh, to do that. And so it was just great fun. Uh, and I had that, that incredible makeup job. And I remember as I was getting the makeup job, they had a, a squib, uh, whole rig on my head and front and back. And uh, I, I don't know if it was Tom or Greg Nicotero that was working with um, Howard Berger, but they put the explosive charge on my forehead and that so it would blow out, and then they covered it with a latex piece. And they were doing all the makeup covering that, and Howard ran outside and got some lichen and brought it in and was gluing it to my face as like I was a drown, drowning victim type of looking thing. And as they were completing the makeup, they started talking amongst themselves and said, which way did you face the explosive? Is it, is it facing in or out? And it's like, I, I think it's facing the right way. Yeah, it's facing. I'm, I'm pretty sure. And I'm sitting there thinking, if you aimed it in, it's going into my head. The gunpowder is going to blow into my head. That's, you know. And then they just laughed because they were teasing me the entire time. Um, but that was just a great, great experience. I was so excited. So how many days did you end up spending on set? Just two, as far as I can recall. It was the first day of just being, hey, be a zombie, and then I don't know what worked out well enough with that. It was just, uh, I was there, I was interested in everything that was going on, and uh, the casting lady who had seen me at first said, hey, if you want to come back, do it again. We'll have you do one of the cooler zombie parts. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm there. But they killed me, so you know, that was it for that one. But uh, so it's most likely just the two days. Mm-hmm. What was the atmosphere like between the makeup portion and then actually being out there and seeing George direct? The makeup thing was just really, really effective, very efficient. I remember they had a bunch of mask pieces hanging on the wall. They had chairs around. They were doing different stages of makeup. I think they had like three different stages of makeup, depending upon how close you were to camera and the most advanced ones like like I ended up being being shot in the head. Being on set was, uh, George's sets were always completely relaxed. He was very, uh, it, it sounds like a cliche, so many people have said it, but he was just a big teddy bear. He was just very self-effacing. He, he wore his scarf, his famous scarf, um, and he was just really um, fun and relaxed. And it was just like, we're all doing this together. It was, there was no... Um, you know, sort of hierarchy feel to it whatsoever, and um, no pressure, no nerves, no nothing like that on any of the sets I was ever on with him from from George or the crew. It was just always very, very uh, relaxed. Dark, the dark half was.
was a little strange because um, Timothy Hutton was a little different because uh, he was playing two parts. So that was a little bit of a weird experience. But all of George's sets were always completely relaxed. And what did you think about Day of the Dead once you saw it? I loved it. I, I remember at first I thought, uh, at first time I saw it, I thought they... It wasn't as claustrophobic as the first two because you know how big a farmhouse is, you know the what the size of a mall is, and so I was wondering about the you know you didn't know exactly know where these tunnels led, and, and, and the claustrophobia uh, was not as intense for me. I remember the first time I saw it, but it's been one of those movies, and I've heard this from other people too, that it grows on you in such a way the more times you see it. It, and I've known, I've known people who say it's their favorite of the trilogy. Uh, and it's really grown on me the more times I've seen it over the years. Uh, and I, I, it does have the claustrophobia. Um, and it's, of course, the effects got uh, better as the years went on. And I just really, I, I loved it the first time, and I've loved it more as the years have gone by. And a great, great cast. Joe Pilato and I had done a play together um, at Carnegie Mellon Metro, and he played a sort of Columbo and Lieutenant Columbo type of character, very comedic and so very different than what he did in Day. And uh, John Amplis was uh, great uh, to be around, and Laurie uh, and I have been friends ever since. And so it's, uh, it was a really fun experience, and I really liked. I really liked the movie a lot it's it's one of my favorites um we we see that you're credited on two evil eyes but uh we're, we're not yeah exactly <laughs> but i'm not in it uh somebody told me i might be in the european version but i haven't gone over there to watch it um <laughs> there was dario argento directed the segment uh, that i was in uh, i did a scene with harvey Keitel, and there was a section of, of that story where Harvey is going around and shooting crime scenes. And there was all of these different crime scenes, and Tom Savini, I know, was involved in the makeup, and, and they were like all these cool, gushy, gory things that he was shooting. And the scene that I was in, uh, I was a police officer with another police officer, and we were taking a body out of, uh, she was stuffed up a chimney in a, somebody's living room. And taking the body out, and Harvey was shooting, and um, I just remember thinking as they were filming it, the way the camera moved, you could just tell as we pulled the body down, the camera like went back across the floor, really low to the floor, and it was this very cinematic thing, and Dario Argento is directing that segment, and Dario is just a wild guy and uh, I couldn't wait to see it because I knew it felt like it was going to look really cool but they ended up what I heard was they just had shot extra murder scenes and as they were showing that section of the movie it was like well we had to lose a couple of the murder scenes so that was unfortunate uh, and it wasn't even so much that I wanted to see me I just wanted to see what that camera move really looked like on screen because I knew it was really really neat but uh Never got to never got to see that. But Dario was a lot of fun. Uh, didn't speak a lot of English. At one point, he was doing something strange with a big white fluffy dog. He's, he's like, "This is fun." Everybody's like, "Look at this and laugh!" Ha ha ha! And everybody looked at him like, "That's not funny." <laughs> we were all looking at him like, "No." Nah. 
<laughs> you just don't think, okay. <laughs> but he was very nice. I think his brother was somehow involved in the in the production. So that was a, a disappointment uh, for me, though, for, for, for that. How did working with Dario compare to working with George? Dario was like you plugged him in. He was like just like you just... He was just wired, and and they were both, yeah, great, but in very very different styles. Dario was bouncy, bouncy all over the place, and yeah, and doing things and saying things in Italian, and and just for everybody, and and just just directing it with his hands of just this, we're gonna do this and sweep and blah blah blah. George is just hanging out and having a laugh and, and and enjoying watching you do stuff and being complimentary and very different, very different. And, but all directors, you know, have their own style and uh, approach to it. Uh, so, that, But they were pretty much polar opposites. <laughs> and you, you didn't have any uh, chance to observe any of the proceedings with Romero's story with two able eyes? No, no, I wasn't around when he did when he did that. I really enjoyed uh, enjoyed that one, and I worked with Bingo on stage and uh, uh, and film things that we did together. And Bingo was one of my favorite people in the world, uh, and uh, I, so I, I really enjoyed the, uh, the uh, that 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 was the Black Cat and the Case of M. Valdemar. Right. That's the one Bingo did, but I, I wasn't around for that one. So for two evil eyes, I was I watching it a couple of weeks ago, and I, I I'm having a hard time finding you. Are you like blended in the background? Two evil eyes. Oh, I'm sorry, not two evil eyes. The dark half. Oh, the dark half. I am. Uh, character's name was Wes. I'm a telephone. I was much heavier then, <laughs> and I. I, mean, I it's been years since I've seen it, but I thought, my God, you're a fat boy. Um, uh, but I was wearing a green sweater. But I was a. Uh, I'm hooking up Timothy Hutton's telephone for a wiretap because okay, uh, okay. Stark keeps calling Timothy Hutton, and he's like, "It's this guy keeps calling, and and I'm there." And I think it was Jeff Howell was in the basement hooking things up, and I'm in the living room, and so at, while I'm hooking up his phone, Stark actually calls. And I'm on the other line listening, and Timothy Hutton's telling me, you know, he knows you're there. He knows, he knows you're there. And I'm like, he can't really know I'm here because I'm not connected. Um, so there was just that little scene there. But that was a, that was real. That was a long day. Timothy Hutton was very into trying all these different ways of doing things, um, and uh, so he did it again and again and again and again. And I remember Amy Madigan was there. I did another film with her uh, called The Prince of Pennsylvania with Keanu Reeves. But Amy was married to Ed Harris, is, as far as I know, still married to Ed Harris. And uh, But she was there for yeah, that, that scene as well. She's a sweetheart. She was really always so nice. Well, did you happen to witness any of the difficulties that between Romero yeah. and Hutton? <laughs> Yeah, I, I mistook I, I mistook it because uh, I was still very green. I had not really done any movie things too much, you know, at that point. And then uh, I hope I'm not. I, Timothy is a wonderful actor, and he just was he was dealing with a very difficult job at the time, doing two 
two parts, um, and really putting himself into it. And he won the Oscar for Ordinary People and all of that. But I remember um, I looked at him. I looked at him at one point as we were doing this scene together, and he turned to George and referring to me, just sort of gesturing to me. But he asked George. He says, or he said to George, he says, "I don't know what he's doing." And I thought, ah, <laughs> like, like, what am I, what am I doing wrong? What, you know, like, what am I doing? And I felt badly about that for years. But then when we did Bruiser, uh, we, George and I spent a lot of time together and he told me stories that I won't repeat, <laughs> but Timothy was basically busting everybody's chops, especially George's, uh, had some major, uh, major, difficulties just trying to get through it but he was really he was just on edge trying i think trying to get everything right but uh for a long time i just thought he insulted me because maybe i was really sucky but apparently he was just being um that way with a lot of people and trying to get a handle on the parts he was playing so that was that made me feel so good, <laughs> but that didn't happen until Bruiser. And I thought, oh gee, I've been thinking, I've been feeling badly about that all these years. Like, oh no, George was like, oh no, man. But let me tell you this one. Let me tell you that one. You know? so, <laughs> like, oh, okay, it wasn't me. Like, no, it was everybody. Like, okay. Well, from your point of view, was it more of uh, Timothy Hutton trying to get every be a perfectionist, or was it him being a, a diva, or a little bit of a little bit of both? Probably and it's so it's so difficult. Like when you're an actor and you're trying to find something and you need your space or you need you need something. And I remember one take he did, and he really went over the top, like to the just nuts with it because he was he gets very upset as uh, as the character during the scene. And he did this take that I thought looked really ridiculously bad, and I thought it it was. He did it, he, and it's not in the movie. They use a different take. But the, the cool thing, and I always remember this about him and admire him for it, he went for it, and he got this huge, crazy, in, over-the-top, through-the-tent performance. And then they used one of the one of the takes after that. But maybe he wouldn't have gotten the take after that had he not... Done, done the big one, but he was really, really trying things, and I, and I remember, um, I, I've always had a bad niece at, at, the, at that time, even then. But I had to squat in the corner, and but for my opening, it was like I was hooking up to the phone, and I stand for my first line and walk across the room or whatever it was, and every it went on and on, and so the longer I squatted, the less quickly I was able to rise. <laughs> Because, like, okay, um, getting up again. But uh, he, he was just trying different things uh, to get the best out of himself. So, and, I, and I've seen performances of him before and after. He's just a really wonderful actor. And it was, it was a tough thing, I guess, for him. We never talked personally. <laughs> so he was just uh, going through that stuff. But that's a, that's a cool, cool thing because you see, you see that, that type of uh, approach. And Amy Madigan, as his wife, was certainly playing a character who was uh, not as pushed to the wall, but quite pushed to the wall. And she and I would just sit on the steps and chat. 
and she was completely relaxed between takes. So, you know, everybody works differently, and everybody needs to do what they need to do, you know, as, as much as possible, and you know, to get there. You know, it's it's always a, a team effort. You know, so. Well, that kind of leads me into the topic that I always have been talking about. I know we've talked about this over the years, but uh, you brought up Bruiser. Yeah. So uh, talk to me a little bit. How did you get involved with that? Because this was George's first uh, Canadian production. Yeah. So can you talk about how you got involved with that? I had written a script that George wanted to direct called The Collaboration, and I had sent it uh, to him, uh, and uh, it wasn't read for the, like, the longest time, and uh, finally, Chris Romero read it and called me, and she was very enthusiastic about it. She said, I'm going to make George read this, and so George read it, and George wanted to direct it, and because of that process beginning um, at me as a writer on that, I met George's partner, Peter Grunwald, who is a really talented producer, one of the funniest guys I've ever met, uh, really nice, and he and I became very good friends. We actually worked on several different screenplay projects together over the years, and so I knew Peter, and so when the, when the thing came that uh, uh, when the project came about that they were going to do Bruiser, he said, hey, there might be something in this for you, and he sent me the script, and I read it, and I was like, oh my god, I'd, I'd love to do this, this would be great, and uh, they were casting in uh, Canada, and there were different rules through the years uh, about how many American actors, how many Canadian actors, and all, and all of that. I was actually supposed to be in Land of the Dead after that, at some point, of years after that, and they had too many American actors with Dennis Hopper and John Leguizamo, and like I lost my part in land because they had to go to Canadian. But at this point, there was the, the there's a couple of roles open. Uh, well, Tom Bertram was open um, for um, for Bruiser, so I um, ended up getting cast as that uh, as, as uh, Bertram. Um, and went up to Toronto and shot and came back to the States and then went back to Toronto. Um, so that was a great fun experience. Uh, but, but it was, it was through that process of I wrote a script and that's how when people say, how do you, how do you get this or do that? It's like, you can't repeat that. I wrote a script that I sent it, you know, sent it to George. He it was busy. Chris read it. You know, it's this weird trajectory. You know, things happen and something else happens and then you meet somebody and somebody says, hey, would you like to do this? So it was one of those things. I've got to ask, because I'm a great admirer of your goatee in the film. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> With, I, don't, I, mean, I that have is, it here on my desk. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is one of the most uh, in, impressive power goats uh, <laughs> com committed to celluloid and I just gotta ask is that was that uh, did you just walk on the set looking like that or was that a direction of the art department or no I wanted to have it there was there was one of those things like when you get a part like well any part you look at it and think okay what can make this different uh, because Bertram was such a, a doormat for uh, Peter Stormare and he's that he's he's the guy who finally you know said okay I'm, I'm getting out of here but the whole thing he, he, he can be so stepped on 
be such a weenie. And I thought, well, they had these great suits, too, um, one of which I bought <laughs> for myself afterwards. Um, so they had this, the, you know, because the setting was uh, a fashion, fashion magazine, they had great clothes. And I thought, he should have an attempt to look cool. It may not work, but he should have the goatee as his attempt to be a cool guy too and, and fit in because he really doesn't, uh, and he can't stand up to, um, Storm Air, yeah, and, and do those things. So the goatee was my idea and I asked, uh, I had, a, I think I had a beard and I wanted to shave down to a goatee. And I went to, I remember we sat in the office, um, the, the cool thing about Bruiser was I got to be around for a lot of it through the production of it and, and uh, uh, discussions about the story and stuff like that to an, an extent. But I remember George and Peter and a few other people in the room, I said I wanted to keep the goatee and I said I wanted to keep it down on the, down on the, uh, a little, bit, a little beyond the chin, a little way. And George says, yeah, yeah, because you want to cut, you know, I, I have the same thing. You want to cover, cover, if you have any double chin, you want to cover your double chin, you know, use the beard to cover, cover that. Like, yeah, yeah. So we we're like, you know, comparing our beards and how we kind of try to look cool, cooler with them. But it was my idea and they let me do it. And so it was, uh, it was a fun thing to do. So that brings me to one of the questions I've been wanting to ask. What was it like working with Peter Stormare? He was great to work with, and I heard, especially through Peter, that he was a nightmare for editing. Because So in terms of acting with him, you really didn't have to, like, okay, this is what we're going to do unless set this and you know what the scene's about and yeah, this is what's going to happen. Every single take would be different. And I remember when we did the scene by the swimming pool, he went to punch me in the stomach. And he wasn't really going to punch me in the stomach, but I, you know, for a second there, I thought he was. And I flinched. I jumped back. And then he moved away, and I tried to follow him, but there was a, a pole there that was for, the, for a tent uh, for part of the set. And I had to, like, maneuver myself around, around the pole. And it was quite, you know, fun and funny to try to follow him and suck up to him with all that. And then we did it again, and he didn't do that. He did something else. But the fun thing about that was you you didn't have to really do anything except go with whatever he was throwing at you because uh, he would throw something new out all the time. And so the old actor thing of, like, you don't have to act, just react. With Peter, that's all you had to do. Just hmm. react to anything he throws at you because he's a, he's a wild and crazy guy, and he was so much fun. The wacky thing, though, with the editing is since he did uh, everything different every take, he wasn't always matching. So when you act in a movie, if you pick up a cup on this word, you when they turn the camera somewhere else, you know, for a different setup, you have to pick up the cup on that word too. You turn your head to the left. You know, you have to remember what you did. Otherwise, the editing doesn't flow. And that's one of the things you have the script supervisor there to watch. But as an actor, you're watching that. You're you know making sure that you're doing things pretty much the same way. And there's always, you know, flubs or mistakes, and you can cut around it, or you notice them in the movies, little little tiny things. But Peter just, he didn't really go with that, man. He just did whatever he wanted to do. 
And at one point, we were in a, the conference room scene, and they had a lot of the extras were sitting around a table. They were all playing like the executives. And at one point, Peter uh, had a line about something like, you have to have balls to be in this business. And he was standing by this 50-something-year-old woman who was an extra who was sitting at the table. And when he said, you have to have balls, he dropped his pants at her face level. <laughs> bare, bare naked. <laughs> Full frontal nudity. <laughs> right in this woman's face. On camera. You have to have balls to be in this business. And... Obviously, you can't use that because it's not going to be in. You can't really use that take. But he would do anything, you know. And but it made his performance spontaneous and fun to watch, even though I'm sure it took extra hours in the editing room. I mean, he was at one point. I re, I don't remember if it's in the movie or, but I remember him doing it. He was puffing on a cigar and he left the room for that take. And he made he would he played like he was a choo choo train and just blowing smoke. On, on his exit, you know, so <laughs> he was alive. and at, at lunch, you'd have lunch with him, and he was like, very normal, quiet, hardly talked, <laughs> it's like, really different than Milo, I think his name was, so, it, it, as, a, as a guy, and, and he was very busy, I remember, he was saying how many films he had done, and he had seen his family for a long time, and, you know, he sort of got the feeling like, well, I'm, you know, missing home. So you had Milo on set, and you had this sort of very introspective, quiet, soft-spoken guy at lunch. You know, <laughs> how did how did George react to that? Because I think you know, I know George was always up for, "Hey George, why don't you try this?" But when it seems like it's more spontaneous, how was his reaction to that? He, well, I think everybody was pretty much watching for it because after a while, uh, it, I, I know that I heard you know stories as people like, oh gosh, you know, how are they going to cut this? I don't know. Um, but I think after a while, it was like, look, this is who he is. This is what he does, and he's giving them great stuff. So it wasn't like he was all over the place and just being sucky. He was doing really great stuff except it wasn't going to cut together and it was just like you just have to watch you just have to hope you get it you know and you're sort of like wrangling you know cockroaches you know you sort of have to like keep you know make sure that you get him walking out of the room because you need that to cut you need or you know so but i think once they got into what his style was they just went with it and accommodated it with uh uh with the knowledge that this is going to take longer in post-production, which was fine. You know, it's like one of those things, better that than everything matches, but it's kind of bland, you know, and bland he was not. You got to spend some on-screen time with another Pittsburgh and Romero alumni, uh, Tom Atkins. Yes, yes, Tom is just, just so, so nice. And I sound like such a nice person saying, oh, this person's so nice. But really, it was like every, all these folks, I mean, I, I found that most of the bigger actors, the big name actors, the talented actors are real sweethearts. And it isn't like, oh, they got, oh, sure, they can, you know, relax and be nice now. I think they're, they're real human beings. That's how they get to be 
good actors and successful. And Tom is just really, really a nice, uh, a nice person. I saw him last year at Bingo O'Malley's, uh, memorial service at the City Theater in Pittsburgh. Um, but he was, he was quite fun. And he's like one of those gruff, it reminds me of like Robert Ryan or somebody, you know, from that era. He just shows up and he's there. He's solid. He's real. He's fun. And he's a really nice, nice person. Real, real charming guy. Can you talk a little bit about working with Jason Fleming and specifically that, I know the one scene where he kind of discovers you after you've witnessed what he's done? Yeah, he was just, uh, he was very interesting. He was, uh, very British, very polite, and I remember I was learning words from him because I he, I, he asked me if I wanted a fag at one point. And I, didn't, I didn't know that meant cigarette, and I thought, what are we? What? Um, you know, I'm I'm married, and no, and I what? No. And nice strides. I didn't know strides were pants in England. I never heard this. Yeah, strides. I didn't know what that meant. Uh, but he was just, we were back and forth, but, uh, he, we were on equal playing field with him. So, um, this is what he's gonna do. This is what I'm gonna do. It was more set, obviously, than, um, than with Peter. But, um, it was very simple. So, uh, so many of those types of scenes, I think, work with you know, the audience is expecting what they're expecting from the scene, from the context. So simply, you know, going with that and the setup is uh, in the suspense of it and in the story. So there was no big histrionics of, of preparation or, uh, you know, let's work this out or let's work that out. But I remember something he did at one point. We're talking and he turned in the chair and dropped his arm and said something like, oh, Tom, whatever he said to me. But just that dropping of the arm, it was like this, what Chekhov would call a psycho, psychophysical gesture. It was just, it was such despair. And <laughs> he was just a, such a wonderful actor, such a wonderful moment that it all just comes pouring out, you know. And you really have to watch yourself. And something I've learned through the years acting-wise, you always, you, you watch yourself later think, no, you should have done less. I mean, for me, for when I watch myself, do less, do less, do less. Just be there, just be there, just be there. You know, so it's, a, it's those big high notes that when you try to hit them, you can't try to hit them. You have to like, what do you need, what do you need to do? And with him, it was just like, just be there with him. He was just uh, totally solid, really really a good actor and and um just a family guy or he had a girlfriend i think at the time uh but just uh talked about going home after the shoot and things like that but just a very solid actor and very simple so kind of building on that with with working with jason did george give you any direction in regards to that scene about whether or not you as the character saw the mask or just saw character of Henry because I know a lot of people it's very ambiguous and George has his own view but I didn't know if he kind of passed that along to you or left it up to you he totally left it up to me and the thing with like almost all directors is that I've worked with that, that have been good directors like like George certainly was is that it would be in the casting he would cast you and you do what you want to do and 
if you need to like stand over there instead of over here, then you know that's part of the blocking, and that's what you have to do. But he directed basically in terms of the casting. He cast the person he wanted and let them do what uh, what they felt the character would do, uh, and without any discussion before, during, after, nitpicking, or collaborating on this moment. It was like, hey, yes, you're playing it. Go. And I remember the thing about, uh, you know, that that is an ambiguous thing. Like, what am I seeing? You know, am I seeing a mask that I think is a mask? Or is, is he just, he's fine and he's just acting really really strangely, you know, and, and he, and he catches me, but he just left it up to the individual moment. And I think so many of those things, that's sort of the point when you have, it isn't like, Hey, this is the right answer. It's going to be up to the audience. It's like the lady and the tiger, you know, when you, that, that story with the, there's the, her lovers behind one door and the tigers behind the other and which one, she opens, that's the one, is she going to get the lover she can't have unless she picks him? But if she opens the door with the tiger, she's going to get eaten. And the end of the story is she opens the door and that's it. And you don't get it. So they, that's, that's sort of the way we played that, like in terms of the audience, in terms of like it, which one's right. Or did George have his feeling about it this way or that way? But I think the ambiguousness of it is better for me uh, that we're dealing with psychological things rather than the, you know, mask or the face gone thing. But again, that's a choice. It's not necessarily the only choice because it's going to be what the audience takes away from it. You know, so you can play it one way as an actor, but the audience can see it another way and it's just equally as valid, you know, it's like the innocence or, you know, the turn of the screw. Is the governess sexually repressed to the point that she's driving these two little kids nuts? Or are they haunted? Are there ghosts? And if you watch that movie, The Innocence, Deborah Kerr, which is one of the scariest movies ever, or read the story upon which it's based, The Turn of the Screw, Henry James, there's no path answer, you know. Yeah, what you take from it, you know. Yeah. So how was how was George? I, I guess I want to say on set compared to you know this is his first Canadian production versus working with a new crew versus working with a more familiar family like atmosphere down in Pittsburgh. When I was there, and they had started shooting before I got there, but when I was there, everybody was just moving like a well-oiled machine. There was there was no um, craziness. Uh, there was no uh, like, oh my gosh, where's this? And we have to move locations, and we're like losing the light now, and we're stuck, and all that stuff. Everything was moving really, really well, and I can credit that to I would say George's demeanor as a person and as a filmmaker also peter grunwald was a fabulous uh, producer on that and ben barinholtz was a producer on that and ben produced movies a number of movies with the cohen brothers and he was he just passed away i think it was last year or so and he was really really uh experienced as well so everything worked uh, amazingly well and also something that really helped me 
is that I remember we did a take and Ben Barinholtz, who I was like, okay, that's, that's Ben Barinholtz. He came over and complimented me on my acting. And I thought, and walked away. I thought, no, it's Ben Barinholtz, you know? <laughs> and it was, and that type of friendliness and just like, you know, you don't see something and just say, okay, good. Glad we got that one in the can. It was like, people were supporting each other, you know? And, uh, I, it was it, it was very very smooth all the way through. There was one thing at the at the beginning for me when I was up there. We were in an office, and there was a guy who worked for George. He was his assistant, and I can't recall his name right now. Younger fella, really nice, and he was talking to George about the movie's not going to be bloody enough to to please the fans, and George didn't want it to be. It was a whole different thing, you know, for him. And this guy, whose name I can't recall, he had an idea, like somebody had a belly button ring. And he said, what if at one point it gets ripped out? And you know, we see this jet of blood as her belly button get, ring gets ripped out. That way the fans will still like you, you know, George, you know, because you're giving them the, the blood and the gore. And, and George didn't say no, but you could tell he... It was no. <laughs> he was just like, oh, that, yeah, yeah, we could, uh, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> you know. But, but it was a different type of film for him, and he really stuck by his guns and and made it the way he wanted to. And I'm really happy that you like it because a lot of people like expect the other thing, uh, which he was brilliant at. But he wanted to do something different, and he did. Oh yeah, I mean, I know we've talked over the years about my love of bruiser and, and whenever I was around George I didn't really talk about George's works with him but I always brought up bruiser from time to time yeah and and, and obviously you know I went to Toronto a couple of years ago and I got to visit a bunch of the locations oh and cool yeah I, I got to go back to the, the house where the hot tub was oh yeah yeah uh, that ended up being a friend of mine that was his house that George oh yeah and, oh, George, cool. and George gave him his director's chair. Um, oh, they he imparted it to me, so we were we were up there, you know, looking around. But, and that kind of led me to another question because that's something I like to do. Were the offices of Bruiser a set, or were they in the building downtown? There was a building downtown. That was where the offices were. They may have had some sort of set thing built somewhere. They did have a warehouse with sets, um, but I know that we were downtown, and we were also. It must have been two things, because I remember we were on a set in a warehouse for one scene, but we were also in the offices, so it was probably a little bit of both, depending upon, you know, the how the, how the scene flowed or didn't. But part of it was definitely on location at a real office space, downtown Toronto, and we did do part of it on, on a set there. And the hot tub was a real, as you know, the hot tub was a real hot tub. Actually, the hot tub was not really a hot tub. It was a cold tub because we yeah. actually didn't get to the scene until like four in, four in the morning. <laughs> and, and they had to shut, they had to shut the, the, the heat off because it made, the bubbles made noise. So they, we started the scene and the hot tub was like, you know, they could keep it warm and it's bubbling. And they realized that's going to be a sound issue. So they had to shut the hot tub off to, to lose the bubbles but when they did that they lost the heat so it's four in the morning in toronto naked in a hot tub <laughs> and i have to stand i have to stand up 
earlier working with Bingo O'Malley and I noticed that you had a writing credit on Tom Savini's Chill Factor. Can you talk about that a little yep. bit? Yeah, we wanted to do a series and I wrote, uh, I ended up over this long process of trying to raise funding, um, I, I came up with like literally 90 something different story ideas because uh, it took like four years or something. And I, I wrote uh, House Call and I don't write with people in mind like ever. Uh, but with, with this one I did. I wrote I wrote it for Bingo and I wrote House Call with Bingo in mind and I called him and I said, hey, I wrote this. Would you take a look at it? He said, oh, I'd love to do it if you wrote it. I said, oh, take a look at it first to make sure, you know, so I, I'll send it to you. So I did and uh, Tom Savini directed it. Uh, Marty Schiff, Tom and I produced it. We shot it in a trucking warehouse uh, in Hopwood, PA, and um, and it was this nice little. Um, that Tom's direction is masterful. I mean, you could you could stop that movie at any frame, and it's a beautiful shot. It's a beautiful picture. Um, it's he did a great job with that, and Bingo was great in it. And uh, so we had this one story, and we tried. We ended up putting it on. Uh, as a, as a dead time stories episode when we did that years later, just because I, people hadn't seen it much, you know, um, and I thought Tom did such a, a spectacular job and Bingo was wonderful. And Bingo actually, the kind of fun thing with that for me was I hadn't seen Bingo for a while and he's playing an older guy as he was. He was like always an older guy. Uh, but, uh, he arrived and he was sort of this, he was very frail and we were shooting it over like five days in the summer and it was hot and he was wearing winter clothes and, uh, for the, for the show and he just was so frail and we were all like, he's doing so well, but gee, Bingo looks like he's really, he's on his last legs there. And like a week or so later, we, we shot the special features. Uh, downtown Pittsburgh at a place called New Perspective. And Bingo came bouncing in. He was wearing a pink shirt, I remember. And he was full of life. And uh, he was just acting that entire week. He was just, he was like in character to a certain <laughs> extent all the time. So he played it frail all the time. And he told me something which, uh, Bingo was so meat and potatoes in terms of like just being there. But he said when he worked on a part, he would figure out like what, what zodiac sign they are. Really? <laughs> like, that seems like very esoteric for somebody like Bingo to think about as, as an actor, but he would, he would really get into those things, so. 
Um, I don't have anything else, and, and Eric doesn't either. So did you want to take a minute and kind of tell us what you're working on, where we can find you? Or... Yeah, a couple of things. A couple things coming up uh, as soon as we're allowed out of the house again. Um, I was cast in a film called uh, No Man's Ridge that Eric Red, who did The Hitcher, is uh, directing. He also wrote it. It's a Bigfoot movie. I'll be shooting that in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, so that'll be that'll be a lot of fun. Eric is like so nice. We met at a screenwriting conference a couple of years back, and uh, it was like I've known him my whole life in five minutes. He was really, really uh, terrific. So going to be doing that. And uh, I'm also going to be doing a film called Straight to Hell. Uh, it was uh, It's from a novel called, um, uh, that's slipping my mind, Something Remains, but by Gary Razor. Uh, and Gary wrote the screenplay Straight to Hell, which is uh, about an Elvis wannabe serial killer type of thing. We're shooting in Las Vegas. And again, once we get out of the house, and uh, so they're in talks with an actor, which who I can't say yet because it isn't a finalized deal, but it's close. So I can let you know if uh, that actually moves uh, moves forward forward with him. But uh, that's uh, with Vegas. And the uh, other thing that I'm working on, just finishing up, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we just locked uh, our final. Uh, well, we're in a rough cut, but it's pretty close to a final cut of a show that I produced and acted in called Actors On. And it's an educational pilot that we would like to do um, teaching students about literature. So the first episode of the pilot is Actors On Macbeth. And so that's a nice scary play. should be up your alley. Um, so uh, we shot that and uh, we're doing the editing on that uh, now. Also shot a little bit of it in Nepal because I taught uh, a class in Nepal, a screenwriting class in Nepal this past August with the Nepal Film and Cultural Academy. So we got to shoot a little bit of it over there. So um, that should be ready for consumption within the month, I would say.